Welcome to The Last Word on the Crosstalk Messages podcast. Every week we take a last look at the message from the most recent Crosstalk. Enjoy this short conversation and stay tuned for the full message directly after. Hello and welcome to The Last Word. My name is Cam and I've got my co-intern Johnny here with me. Howdy. Morning. And then we've also got JD, our amazing Crosstalk pastor, joining us this morning. Good to be here morning. this morning. Hello. Good morning, guys. Um, so this is... Uh, the last week before we have Thanksgiving, and then we've got one more crosstalk after that. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yep. It uh, last one's December first. Wow. So, yeah, we'll be in the College of Education teaching theater again. I yep. feel like that's worth saying that that's where we're going to be. <laughs> yeah. Hard to believe that we're already wrapping up um, the series that we've been doing on the character of God and God's attributes, and what we've been calling the knowledge of the holy. And this week we got into. The second part of that declaration from the Lord of him proclaiming who he is in Exodus 34, 7. And J.D., you mentioned this last night, but I think there's some kind of like nervousness surrounding this because it doesn't seem like the first part of what God describes as himself. And for me, something that I think of and something I thought of last night at Crosstalk is is generational sin and like Mm -hmm. generational chains. And so for me, like in my life, and I'm sure that other people can also relate to this, that's what came up. And so what would you say to someone who immediately thinks of generational sin and chains and their immediate reaction is like, oh, fear and like to shudder from hearing this. Absolutely. I think that that is, when we take that perspective, oftentimes we end up in a spot where we feel powerless to escape our family patterns. And that's just to take all uh, personal responsibility out of things, right? That if my grandfather struggled with something, and my dad struggled with something, then it's inevitable that I'm going to struggle with the same thing. Mm -hmm. Well, we have a choice in that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We have a choice to follow the patterns of our families or to blaze a new trail in our own family patterns and and choose something different. And so I think that this automatically does make us uh, a little bit uncomfortable because it does get at this idea of, am I going to suffer for something that my grandfather did or my father did? Mm -hmm. And the answer is no. Like our own personal behavior influences whether that is a self-fulfilling prophecy or we change the narrative in our families. And so there isn't this like inevitability to it, but it is a, a promise that if we follow in the path of our grandfathers and our fathers, then we're going to have the same sort of consequences and accountability that takes place in our own life. It's an assurance that God is ultimately just to treat us fairly and equitably according to how we act. But there's no part of this that says, well, just because your dad struggled with something, that means that you're also going to struggle with the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, And so I think that we have to divorce uh, this sense of inevitability from the sense of personal responsibility mm-hmm. when it comes to this. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Very well said. I always think of generational sin. I relate it to like football mm-hmm. and it always makes sense to me. And I'll explain why, but you can think of almost like it's like a playbook. And so whenever you're given the play of the other team, you know, you could be scared. You're like, okay, they're about to run this really good play. But in reality, you're like, well, I know what play they're going to run. And so now I know how to defend against it and what to do. Right. And it's kind of mm-hmm. similar where you're like, okay, I'm scared of this generational sin that I might struggle with this. Mm-hmm. Like that's a scary thought to come to realize. Mm-hmm. But in my life, I'm like, okay, I recognize <laughs> what generational sins there are in my family's life. And so now I know what to defend or how to defend against it. Mm-hmm. And in reality, it's saved me from so many troubles 
Um, but of course, it took me falling into, you know, those plays into uh, realizing that I was going to struggle with those things. Um, but in reality, I just think of it like the playbook. And so I'm like, okay, now I know how to defend against it. I know what to defend. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of helped me a lot to wrap my head around, okay, what is this and what to do with it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think yeah. when you look at all of this stuff, of course, if you grow up around something and you think that this is the way that I'm supposed to act or this is the way that it looks to care for my family or all of these various things, when we grow up with something, we're naturally going to emulate a lot of those things. Now, when you're learning to drive a motorcycle, do you, any of you guys drive motorcycles? Absolutely <laughs> not. So when, you, when you learn to drive a motorcycle, what you're taught is that you aim at the thing that you want to avoid. Like you have to go towards the thing that you want to avoid. If you're focused on going around it, you're going to screw it up, you're going to crash your bike, all of this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to generational sin, we do, like you said, Johnny, we, we know the play, like we know what it looks like, and so we look at it dead on. And when we look at it, when we behold it, when we uh, are critical of it, then we know how to avoid it. Mm-hmm. And so it comes back to that personal responsibility. And for a lot of us, we fall into those generational patterns mm-hmm. because of the way that we're raised. But the reality is we don't have to. Mm-hmm. We, don't, we don't have to. And that's what God yeah. demonstrates here is that you don't have to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And uh, I think this is a good segue into the next question that I had when you talk about uh, personal responsibility. And when last night you brought up justification in Mm -hmm. Romans 3, what is that, like, is there a tension with having personal responsibility, but also like being justified by Christ? Because it can sound confusing, I think. Like Mm -hmm. we're justified Mm -hmm. under the blood of Christ, but at the same time, we... Through Christ, have the power to demolish strongholds and like our generational sins and chains. So, like, what what is that? Absolutely, we we have to recognize that we are not justified by our works. Mm-hmm. That nothing that we can do or earn is going to set us in right standing with God. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we start from that basis, and then we see that yes, the atoning work of Jesus on the cross by the spilling of His blood has has made a way when we accept that free gift to be in right standing with God. And the question becomes, uh, is that a license for us to do whatever we want, right? That I just checked the box that says that I'm justified before God. And so now I can begin to just live my life however I want. No, Paul makes it very clear that, yeah, those of us who have died to sin, sin no longer, like we're, we're supposed to turn and we're supposed to walk away from those things. So no, we can't earn our way back into right relationship with God. But when we say yes to Jesus, we begin to live a transformed life. The old self is dead and we're raised to walk in newness of life with Christ, which means giving ourselves out over to the transforming power of the Holy Spirit to make us more and more like Jesus on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And um, I'm just full of analogies today, I guess. Uh, I was thinking of the, it's the boat. Youth in you. Yeah, it's the youth pastor. In you. I'm always immediately just thinking of analogies. But this one, most people know, but it's of like the sailboat when you're like, okay, you don't want to just not row and just let the wind take you wherever and hope you land at the right spot. But you also don't want to be fighting against the wind or you know not using it to your advantage to like you know use it to your sails. Um, and reality, you want to use both like the wind and you want to also like 
be trying to direct your boat in the right direction to try to get where you're trying to go, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And in the same way, we're not going to let God just do, you know, whatever he wants and we're not going to do anything. And we're just going to continue to live our lives as if, you know, he's not around. Um, But also in the same time, you know, like we got to be putting in the effort, but we also got to be like trusting God, you know, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there's that beautiful relationship that makes sense, honestly, where mm-hmm. we got to take that pressure off ourselves to be doing all the work, but that we also need to be trusting in God continuously every single day, like die to ourselves and learn what can we give up to God today mm-hmm. um, to break those strongholds and to live more like Jesus every single day, but not try to assume we're going to be exactly like Jesus one day. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a process. Yeah. yeah. I also kind of have a wacky analogy that I don't know if mm, it's going to make go. sense. but. You I want to hear it. Yeah, we'll, we'll see if it makes sense. So when I hear justification, like you are now justified before God, something that almost like helps it make sense to me is thinking of like a passport. So when you get your passport, you now have it and you are now officially like, you know that you are a citizen of the United States. You were, you were already a citizen before, but like, it is like <laughs> yeah. your proof. It is right. like, this cannot be disproven. If I go somewhere else, if I try to go to other countries, I have this and I have the choice to rest with this in this passport and trust that if I go somewhere with it or if I go into another country, I can depend on the fact that I am who I am in my identity and nothing will change that. But versus if I if I don't have it, there's no way I can go other places without it. And there's no way I can grow and and just leave or um go different places without it. Mm-hmm. Um so I don't know if that makes sense, but in my mind, I think of it like, I have this, I am justified because of it, and I can depend on this and I can rest in it. And it's not because of my work that I get to go and explore these other places and go different places. It's because I rest in the work that this passport has done for me. And I yeah. can choose to rest in it or I can choose to not. Um, for sure. And that's where uh, the two concepts kind of come together between right. justification and sanctification. Justification being how we stand with God and sanctification mm-hmm. is how we walk yeah. with God. And so justification is a one-time thing. Right. We're not every day needing to be justified. Jesus already finished that work. And so we are justified. Mm-hmm. So we begin the process of how we walk with God, how we become more like him on a daily basis. And so when we when we hold these two concepts as central to who we are, then we don't fall into the trap of legalism where we're trying to earn anything. Rather, mm-hmm. we see that I am justified. And so I begin to walk with God in the reality of everyday life. And so those two things play hand in hand. It's not like you're justified one day and then someday down the line, you become like start the process of sanctification. It's like, you're justified. Now start walking with God. Your your actions do matter, not because they justify you, but because that's how we're transformed into the image of, of God's likeness mm-hmm. you know, on an everyday basis. Yeah, for sure. And I think as we're transformed more into the image of God's likeness, we, we have questions that come up. And as we walk and we walk alongside people to follow Jesus, I think that there's questions even about like Exodus 34, 6 and 7 that come up that we might not have the answers to or Mm -hmm. different things like throughout scripture. And so what can we do? And like, what would you say to someone who is maybe like nervous or scared to share the gospel because they don't have all the answers with things like this that come up? Share your own story. Mm -hmm. The, The reality is we're never going to debate anybody into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. When it becomes an argument or a debate, we've lost the transforming power of the gospel. What we do is simply share, 
what God has done in our life and who God has shown himself to be in our life. And so it, I love the story in the gospel where the Jesus heals a blind man and the blind man goes before, I believe it's the, the Pharisees in the temple. And he says, I was blind, but now I see. Mm-hmm. That is simply our role in sharing the gospel with other people is I was blind. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you the story of, of the brokenness of my life. But now I see, I've received the healing and the redemption that Jesus has offered me. Nobody can argue with your own story, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And so share the gospel through the lens of your own story, Mm -hmm. what God has done in your life. And that demonstrates the transformational power of the gospel message in a very, very real way, because then you're inviting people to experience the same thing. It's not about your theological knowledge. It's not about uh, this idea that sometimes people say, well, I have to know enough before I start sharing the gospel with mm-hmm. other people. No, you know what God has done in your own life. Mm-hmm. So share that and allow that your testimony to, to be this beautiful gospel presentation. And the reality is I've been in ministry professionally now for about 10 years. I still don't know it all and I'm never going to know it all. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm waiting to know it all, I'm never going to get started. Yeah. I'm never going to get started. And God wants to use us as broken and sinful people to be his instruments mm-hmm. of change here in the world. And so let's lean in and mm-hmm. participate in that. And one of the most beautiful answers you can give somebody is, I don't know, let's figure it out mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. Give yourself permission to not know. Mm-hmm. That's, that is a beautiful thing. God doesn't need you to be able to prove him. Mm -hmm. That's his job. Mm -hmm. And so let's just share what God has done in our life and allow that to be a beautiful picture of the gospel message. Mm. Yeah, that's really good. And also I think, like I was saying before, is taking that pressure off yourself Mm -hmm. because in, I was trying to look it up, but somewhere in the middle of Mark, um, Jesus is talking about how it's not you speaking, but rather the Holy Spirit speaking through you Mm -hmm. and that God's not going to call you to something he doesn't prepare you for. Mm -hmm. And so I gave a lot of talks this last week and every time that I was nervous, I would go to God and I would pray to him and be like, God, this is your message. This is not mine. And Mm -hmm. even if I say nothing from what I've prepared, like I know it's what you want me to say. Mm -hmm. And so I continuously was like going to God, just asking that he would speak through me Mm -hmm. and that it was not my words, but rather his own. Mm -hmm. And every time I do that and that I like submit to God and that I trust in what he's going to say rather than me trying to say something super profound and Mm -hmm. whatnot, I always end up like going off the script, you know, and I always end up saying things. I'm like, who was that? Like, I don't know who said that. Where (laughs) did that come from? And it's always just like, man, God really worked in those moments and Mm -hmm. that he spoke to someone like using specific words that like, I don't think like I would have chosen. I don't know. He just, he guides me and he like gives me that wisdom that like I need um, in those talks. And so Mm -hmm. whenever you're nervous to share the gospel, just realize that like the Holy Spirit's going to speak through you and that I don't know, it's kind of like with Moses, you know, God was going to Moses and he was like, hey, I need you to lead all these people. Mm -hmm. Moses is like, I have a speech impediment. I'm Mm -hmm. nervous about that. And then you have this back and forth interaction between them. Um, And then he ends up, you know, giving Moses or Aaron to be the speaker. And so Mm -hmm. like, God's going to provide, you know, Mm -hmm. he's going to provide you to share the gospel uh, one way or another. Yeah, absolutely. That's so good. Um, And I'm reminded of the story of the woman at the well, the, uh, the Samaritan woman. And um, how she has an encounter with Jesus and he tells her everything that 
she's ever done. And he says, I know that you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. And when she has this encounter with Jesus and when she's melted by him, she doesn't say, okay, I need to go learn more first and then I'll go tell people. Mm -hmm. She immediately says, I'm going to tell everyone I know. And she runs and she just tells people of what God has done in her life. And it wasn't about her knowledge. It wasn't about what she brought to the table, but it was about that Jesus knew her and loved her. And she had this radical encounter with him and it changed everything for her. So, well, um, I think that about wraps it up for this week, but I'll hand it over to JD to talk about our last week of the semester. Absolutely. I'm I hope you guys have enjoyed this series as much as I have. I think that it's been really, really fun to begin to answer the question, what is God like? And when we begin to understand what is God like, we then begin to be able to answer the question, if I come to him, how is he going to act toward me? And we see that God is compassionate, that he's gracious, that he's slow to anger, that he's abounding in loyal love and faithfulness, and ultimately that he is just. And one of the things that we talked about last night is that these things aren't in tension with one another, but they're integral parts to the whole. And when we when we begin to view it in that way, we we understand the balance of all of these things gives us a beautiful holistic picture of who God is. And in that we see a, a dependability, a stability and an assurance of how God is is going to act towards me. And then when we fast forward and we look at the the story of Jesus and the gospel message, we see that dependability and that assurance of God's disposition towards us in a remarkable way. And so I hope that this uh, just begins to frame how we view the gospel message, how we begin to, to view the God of the Bible. And we begin to allow that to inform the way in which we do share our stories, like we just talked about and, and how powerful it can be when we just point to the character of God. Next week, we'll... Uh, no crosstalk because of Thanksgiving, but the the final week, that'll be December 1st. We're just going to hop in and we're going to look at the story of Christmas. And so I hope that you guys join us and that it's a, a kind of a bit of respite as we focus on the birth of our Savior as we go into finals week and everything and beyond. So we'll see you guys there. You said I normally sit up here. It's... <laughs> I was literally, I would sit in a classroom where Devin sat, which I now understand why it was frustrating for professors of mine, because it's like, you don't even, you just are almost not even existing in the room. Like you're here because you have to be here for class, but you really don't want to be here and it becomes obvious up there. And I know that that's not Devin at all, but that's completely (laughs) beside the point. Um... It's good to be with you guys, especially the week before Thanksgiving. Is it a crazy school week for y'all? Yes, for some of y'all. Well, I so appreciate you guys being here. I know, at least when I was in school, the week before Thanksgiving was always nuts. They're like trying to squeeze in all of these last projects, whether it's another test, things of that nature. And really, you get back and it's like one week and then finals. So you guys are almost done, um, which should be encouraging. I hope that's encouraging for you guys. You guys have almost made it. Um, Kind of reflecting on this semester, we started the semester by talking about creation. And we spent time talking about who God, who we see God to be and who we see ourselves to be through the story of the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. After we finished with that, we've been for the rest of the semester talking about the character of God as it's revealed by God himself in Exodus chapter 
34. Now, these are, are characteristics or attributes that God ascribes to himself. It's not somebody speaking about God, but this is God describing to Moses who he is. And this is a really important passage for us because it begins to answer the question, what is God like? And if I come to him, how, what is his disposition towards me going to be? How is he going to receive me? In essence, this would be like somebody walking up to you on the quad or on a Thursday morning and, and you're handing out cards and somebody just says to you, what is God like? Describe the God of the Christian faith to me. This is what begins to frame how we describe who he is. Now, A.W. Tozer very famously said that whatever comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Whatever comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He goes on to say that it's not what a person is going to do or say in any given moment, but what he in his heart believes God to be like. What is God like to you? How would you describe God? Most of us come with some idea of who God is. We have this conception of who God is in our head, and, and some of that is is formed by our experience being taught and reading the scriptures for ourselves, but most likely it comes from someplace else. We all come with baggage to the scriptures, to an understanding of God, because our life experiences, how Christians have treated us, how people have talked about God in the past, begin to form our view of Him. And as a result, it can be really hard for us to actually let the Bible tell us who God is, and let that set the agenda for us. So these verses that we've been studying here for the last five weeks have been really, really important for us because they're actually giving us a baseline context to understand who God is in the narrative of the Bible. Who God is. And so far, we've talked about five attributes of God's character. The first word that God uses to describe himself is that he is compassionate. God is compassionate. In essence, this means that God suffers with us. And the compassion that he feels with us is almost always paired with the action of forgiveness and rescue. So God suffers with us. He enters into our own pain and suffering, and then he acts to bring about forgiveness and rescue in our circumstance. Looking back, we saw that God's compassion is this heartfelt response to the pain and the suffering of his people. Now, the second word that God uses to describe himself is that he is gracious. God is gracious. And we saw that God is gracious towards us in spite of ourselves, not because of ourselves. Meaning that God continues to pursue us and say yes to us, not because of what we have done, but because it is his character. Next, we talked about the fact that God is slow to anger. And this is a central attribute to who God is. In other words, this is simply to say that God is patient. That his, in his character, in his essence, he is patient. And in Jesus, we see a story of divine patience. God was patient with us. God was patient with us when we were choosing to walk our own way in this life, rejecting God and how he calls us to live. God is patient with us now as we daily 
find need for his forgiveness. And God will be patient with us tomorrow and the next day and for the rest of our lives. And we also saw that God is abounding in loyal love. And loyal love describes this sort of love that's a commitment and a desire and a choice all in one. A commitment and a desire and a choice all in one. That is to say that God's loyal love is a concrete action taking love. It has desire and it has emotion as a part of it, but in its core, it is when the words I love you then take form in concrete action. And God's greatest demonstration of his loyal love was the sacrifice of his son, Jesus, for the redemption of all humanity. Now, last week, we looked at the last of these five character attributes, and we saw that God is faithful. Even when people fail to remain faithful to God's covenants, God remains faithful to his people. In other words, even when we screw up, even when we turn and we walk away from God, he doesn't turn away from us. He then calls us to respond to his faithfulness with faith of our own. And we talked about how biblical trust is not blind trust in any way. Biblical trust is not blind trust, but in the Bible, faithful people are consistently looking back on the examples of God's faithfulness in the past and allowing that to be the basis for their trust and their faith in him going forward. Now, this week, we're going to explore the final part of how God describes himself in Exodus 34. And we're going to look at what it means when we say that God is just. So if you guys have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. We'll start there. We're going to jump around a little bit. But if you guys have your Bibles, feel free to open them there, or it's going to be on the screen behind me. It says, in starting in verse 6, the Lord passed before him, him being Moses, And proclaim the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the father of the fathers, on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So when we read this verse, let's just be honest for a second. The first verse is wonderful. It's really, really wonderful to read and to think about. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. These attributes are really lovely. They give me the warm fuzzies inside when I begin to think about them. No wonder it's requoted so many times all throughout the Old Testament in our thinking about God. Then, The second half of this statement, it starts out really lovely too. At the beginning of verse 7, it reinforces this idea that God is the keeper of loyal love for thousands. And he is the forgiver of iniquity and transgression and sin. That's great because I do all of those things. And so this is a, a great thing for me to read and to think about as well. And then all of a sudden, these verses take a turn. In our reading of him, yet he will not clear the guilty. He will visit the iniquity upon the fathers and on the sons and on the sons and their sons, like the grandkids, all the way to the third and the fourth generation. Now, for me growing up, uh, my grandmother was an English teacher. By the time that she retired, she taught, I believe it was 45 years 
when she retired, which is remarkable for somebody to teach for that length of time. And she actually taught in the same school for all 45 of those years. It's a super, super cool story. But when I was learning to write, starting very early in my life, I would send all of my essays, I would send all of my papers, I would send all of my English assignments and my projects to her, and she would edit for me. And she would then send them back to me. Now, that's not to say she wasn't one of those grandparents who would just write it for me, but she was really, really interested in forming me into being a good writer. And so when she would edit, she would give me this great feedback that helped me to understand grammar and structure. It helped me to understand writing style. In essence, it helped to develop me into a good writer who could clearly communicate my ideas. Now, for example, when I, when I was applying for college, which feels like a, a millennium ago at this point, we all have to write all of our college entrance essays, right? You guys still had to do that? Um, and I remember I was applying to a whole bunch of different schools all over the place, and they weren't all through one sort of common application system. And so I was writing all of these essays, and I would send them over to my grandmother, and she would edit for me, and then she would send them back. And there was, came a point in time that in my senior high school English class, one of our assignments was to write our college entrance essays, which was great for me because I had already written them. I'd already sent them off to my grandmother and got them back. And so they're really like tight and polished and ready to be turned in. And so I thought it was the greatest thing in the world because it was an easy A for me, I felt like. I had to do no work and I knew I was gonna get a good grade. So I turned these things in and I, and I remember I got my papers back and my teacher, as she handed it back to me, she, she made the comment that she hadn't seen an essay this good in like 10 years. The last 10 years, she hadn't seen a college entrance essay this good, and it was all because of my grandmother. Because what I gave to her the very first time was a pile of garbage, and she gave me some good feedback, and then we went back and forth a few times, and it turned into this good piece of writing. Now, one of the things that I learned from my grandmother when it came to writing is that when I wanted to write a really memorable paragraph, when I wanted to say something that had, when I had something important to say, then I was supposed to end with the thing that I wanted, to re- wanted my reader to take with them. You save that thing till the very end, and that's what they take with them. That's the memorable thing. And this concept is that the last thought that I want the reader to take with them, it should be the most important thing. It should be the most important thing. That's why, if nobody's told you, your conclusions to your papers are really, really important. It's oftentimes the thing that we write the very last, we put no effort into because we're running up against our deadline, and we're just hoping that we can summarize something very, very quickly and get it turned in. Our conclusions are the most important part of what we write because they are summarizing. They're making our point one last time so that when somebody reads something that we have written, they walk away knowing the point of what they just read. And so when we think about it that way, The last thought here in Exodus 34 is about visiting iniquity generationally, which is really, really intense. (laughs) Let's just like take a moment and acknowledge that. It's intense. And when we read the second half of verse seven, all of these other thoughts about God being faithful and gracious and kind, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, they just all kind of fade away and we're left with this thought that God is going to visit the iniquity of the father on the son and on his son's son all the way down through the lines of these generations. 
And we're left feeling somewhat uncomfortable with that. Or at least I am uncomfortable when I read those sorts of things. And I think that's the reason that when most people quote this verse, they stop after keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. They just like cut it off mid-verse. Because nobody wants to deal with this uncomfortable part of this. Or when somebody says it's their favorite verse, they're almost always talking about verse 6. Because that makes us feel really nice inside. The God is compassionate and gracious to me, that he's slow to anger with me, that he's abounding in love and faithfulness. We're just going to leave off the back half of this because that's the thing that I can put on the little sign that I'm going to put in my bathroom. That's the one, right? Being perfectly honest with y'all, when I was thinking about this series, it was a a temptation for me to just stop after the five character attributes that we see in verse 6 because I didn't want to deal with the discomfort that goes to digging into what this actually means. But there's one big thing that that we have to understand when we are reading these verses, and that there is a difference in communication style that's happening right here. Do we have any English majors or communications majors in here? Anybody? (laughs) Kind of. (laughs) Used to be. Well, from a modern communication standpoint, you end with the thing that you really want to make sure a person takes away with them long-term. That's why ads always have this tagline at at the end of them, right? That's the thing that they want you to remember as it goes on to the next thing. But what we need to realize is that there's a different communication strategy that's being utilized here. It's one where there's a balance that's going on. The first half of the statement is about God's compassion and his generosity towards us. But then the second half of the statement is all about how that compassion and that generosity are not then a license for us to do whatever we want. It reminds us that we are accountable to God for our actions, that there's judgment for how we decide to live our lives. And what we come to realize when we dig into this balance is that the entirety of the whole is more important than the final word. The totality of all this says about God is far more important than the last word. Let's frame this with a question. What is God like if I just took this first description of God found in the Bible? Well, it's a balance of mercy and compassion and patience, but also a very firm sense of justice and accountability. And now there isn't any overemphasis on any one character attribute or quality, but they exist alongside one another. And what I would contend is that they're not in tension with one another, but they're an integral part to a holistic understanding of who God is. To dig into this balance a little bit further, let's look at a moment that takes place in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Now, in Deuteronomy, Moses is retelling the Ten Commandments for a new generation of Israelites who are about to enter the Promised Land. All of the generation that was led out of slavery in Egypt have now died, and they're standing on one side of the Jordan about to cross over into the Promised Land. And Moses is reiterating the terms of their covenant agreement with God to them. So when he gets to the first commandments about having no other gods, he inserts this quotation that we find in Exodus 34, 7. Deuteronomy 5, verses 8 through 10 say, you shall not make for yourself a carved image 
or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth below or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. But verse 10, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. He visits the iniquity on those who hate him. That part we're really familiar with. We just looked at it from Exodus 34, 7. We've seen that before. But then we see that God shows steadfast love to those who love him and keep his commandments. Wait a second. That's something new for us in thinking about this. What's the deal with that? Well, when we're reading Exodus 34 and you read that God visits the iniquity of the fathers on the sons and on the sons and on the sons and upon the grandsons to the third and the fourth generation, what you're not told in that description is what did the kids do? What did the kids do? Did the kids make the same mistakes as their fathers and their grandfathers? At the core of this question is the concept of justice. At the core of this question is the concept of justice. Just because my dad did something bad, why do I have to suffer? That doesn't seem just. That seems incredibly unfair, if we're being honest. And the question that we have to ask, is this, in fact, what it means? That God will visit the consequences of my grandfather's sin upon me, and I'll be the one to suffer for it. Is that what Exodus 34, 7 is saying? And if so, why does God stop at the fourth generation? Why not the fifth generation or the sixth generation? Where's the logical end to this thought process? Well, the rephrasing that Moses does in Deuteronomy 5 tells us that when we're talking about these future generations, their behavior is crucial to how God responds to them. Their behavior is crucial to how God responds to them. In other words, when God says in Deuteronomy chapter 5 that he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the sons to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, it's clarifying that we're talking about if later generations repeat or continue in the covenant rebellion of their ancestors, of their dads and their grandfathers, of their great-grandfathers. And if that is true, then they're going to get the same consequences. If they're doing the same things their parents did and their grandparents did, then God is equally just in treating them the same way. The third and the fourth, when we think about to the third and the fourth generation, the third and the fourth is meant to be understood as an idiom that means whatever number. You could take this as far as you wanted to go to the hundredth generation, but it's making a point that this could go on in perpetuity. It could go on forever. And this is meant to be viewed in contrast to the loyal love that God has for thousands of those who love him. Thousands of those who love him. The numerical disparity drives home the basic point that we're to understand about what God is saying here in this moment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. When we talk about these thousands of those who experience the loyal love of God, we're talking about thousands of generations who have remained faithful to the covenant, 
who have remained faithful to their relationship with God. In other words, what he's saying is that no generation gets a free pass. No generation gets off where their actions do not matter. And no generation as a result will then be treated unjustly. Their own behavior matters to how God responds to them. What I'm saying is that this whole bit about generations is God clarifying that this just isn't for you guys. For the context of the Israelites who are hearing this for the very first time, it's not just for you guys. This is also for your kids and your kids' kids. I'm not making some special thing for you guys, but this is how it's always going to be. If you turn away from me, if you do evil, then I'm going to have to hold you accountable to that. But what we see in this numerical disparity is that his disposition is always one of steadfast love. His disposition towards us is always one of steadfast love. Now let's place this in the larger context of the biblical narrative for a second. This is God's revelation of his character to a specific people group that he has made a covenantal relationship with, the nation of Israel. So the point is, as the generations go by, we can go down the line of history with the people of Israel, and you can count on God being this way always. That every generation, he is going to treat them in the same way. This is how he interacts with everyone. So it's really a statement about the stability of God's character. That he doesn't change from generation to generation, but when we come to him, we know what to expect. We know the kind of God that we're going to interact with. If we, the royal we, all of us here in this room, are representative of how people in general in our culture might hear this, we see the statement about God having this nice side, and then we see it about God having this more stern side to him. And for us, we hear those as somehow in conflict with one another. But when the biblical authors thought about the relationship of these concepts, they heard the whole thing as a statement of stability and assurance. Because you see, they lived as a people group among other people groups. They weren't the only people walking around where they were living. There were all of these other nations around them, and there were all of these, and each one of these nations had competing gods. They all had their own version of God. In other ancient Near Eastern religions, gods were perceived as being very temperamental and very unpredictable. So that when you came before God and you offered your sacrifice, you had no idea what you were going to get. Whether he was going to favor you or whether your sacrifice wasn't enough. And so you lived in this fear of not knowing God's attitude towards you. So this is an assurance that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is different from all of those other gods. The lower, uh, the disproportionate numbers really are the key to understanding the meaning of this statement for us. The lower number, the third and the fourth, is associated with God's judgment, whereas the thousands is associated with God's covenant loyalty and love for his people. And this results in this beautiful picture that shows us that the generosity of God is, is eternal and it's endless. When we look at the scales, you would come to think that these two numbers would balance out. 
that it wouldn't be the third and the fourth generation and then the thousands over here. You would expect them to be equal. But what we see is actually this remarkable picture where the scales are kind of balanced towards mercy. The scales are balanced towards steadfast love and faithfulness. And this generosity, though, will not be at the expense of God's judgment. God will deal with us individually fairly and in, right, in the right way. Every generation, each one of us is accountable for our own actions. But God's judgment is only a means to a greater end, which is this covenant loyalty, which is this loyal love. Now, one of the key concepts for us to understand in the Christian faith when we talk about judgment or God being just is the term justification. Justification plays a massive role in how we understand our own standing with God. Justification deals with that standing, and it's primarily a legal term. In a court of law, if a person is justified in their actions, it means that they did the right thing, that they did the right thing in that given situation. The judge declares you to be righteous in your actions, righteous in your deeds, righteous in your words. So when we talk about our justification in a theological sense, we're talking about the state of being in right standing with God. The state of being in right standing with God. Now, how does that come about? Well, that's one of the most crucial questions for us as followers of Jesus today. How do we come into right standing with God? Well, Paul explains this for us in a really cool way in Romans chapter 3. Verse 21 says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Verse 27, where then is boasting? It is excluded because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, how are we justified? Well, we see very clearly in this passage, it's certainly not by works. Certainly not by works. Our justification, Paul says, is apart from works of the law, meaning that we can never do enough or be enough to earn our way into right standing with God. Paul tells us, on the other hand, that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, something cool that a pastor told me years and years ago about this, I asked him how uh, to not become bitter or resentful when people hurt me, especially people within the church. And he pointed out that here in this verse, Paul is talking in the past tense, all have sinned, past tense. But the reality is, 
our sin is not all past tense. We sin every day. And so to, to hold somebody to uh, account on the fact that all have sinned is to not give them permission to not be perfect. It's to have an unrealistic expectation of somebody else, that they're somehow un- incapable now of hurting me or treating me wrongly. This is talking about past, present, and future. All have sinned, all are sinning, and all will sin and fall short of the glory of God. That is the reality that we live in, is that we are broken and sinful people. And we know that God would be just in holding us accountable for those actions, for our shortcomings. But Paul doesn't leave us there in this passage. He says that we have all been justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. To simplify what Paul is saying, we are justified simply by saying yes to Jesus. Simply by the act of turning to God and saying, God, what you want for me, I want for me. And so I say yes to you and I surrender my life to you. It really is a simple thing. Now, justification, just to be clear here, justification does not excuse our sin. It doesn't ignore our sin. And it also doesn't endorse our sin. Rather, we see that our sin is fully punished. Christ having taken the penalty for us on the cross. He was our substitutes. And through the shedding of his blood, Christ Jesus finished the work required for our own justification. And as a result, we now can stand before God as holy and blameless in his sight. If you're here today and you've never said yes to Jesus, I hope that you see in this conversation how deeply loved you are by God. How deeply loved you are by God. You see, God is full of mercy and compassion and patience. And his justice was satisfied by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. His justice was satisfied in that moment. Jesus has already paid the price for your stuff and for mine. And Anna, I would invite you to say yes to a God who has already said yes to you 2,000 years ago and is still saying yes to you today. In him, we find a promise of stability and assurance for our lives, of how God is going to respond to us in our time of need. Now, for those of us who have already said yes to Jesus, I would invite us to think about the balance that's present in these verses in Exodus 34. The first half of the statement is about God's compassion and his generosity. We see that very clearly in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which made a way for us to be justified. It is a picture of God's compassion and generosity towards us. But the second half is about how that compassion and generosity that was shown to us is now not licensed for us to live however we want. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 6. He says, Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? 
gets at this idea that if I go on living my life however I want to live my life, it just gives God more opportunities to make his grace known to the world around us. Paul goes on to say, by no means. For those of us who have died to sin, those of us who have died to sin. And so that begins to ask the question, what does discipleship look like for us? Those of us who have already said yes to Jesus, what does it mean to walk with God? When we treat God's compassion and generosity in this way, where we where we are just kind of flaunting it so that we can live the lifestyle we want to live, we are cheapening the work of Christ in a dramatic way. Instead, we need to realize that we were bought at a price. And we cannot cheapen what God has already bought. We cannot cheapen what God has already bought. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book called The Cost of Discipleship, says, the only person who has the right to say that he is justified by grace alone is the person who has left all to follow Jesus. Such a person knows that the call to discipleship is a gift of grace and that the call is inseparable from the grace. We are now called to begin the process of walking with God, becoming more and more like him every day. This is the process of what we call sanctification. It's the process of being Uh, made into Christ's likeness, to be made holy day by day. And this is the process of discipleship, and it's a lifelong process of giving more and more of ourself to more and more that we know of God. To leave all and to follow Jesus with our entire lives, to live surrendered lives to his work. And as we do so, we rest on the assurance that even though we will inevitably make mistakes, God's character shows us time and time again that mercy triumphs over judgment. God is wholly just. But in the person of Jesus, we see that his mercy triumphs over justice. May God grant us joy as we strive with all of our lives to follow the way of discipleship. May we be empowered to say no to sin, but yes to the sinner. And most of all, would we trust in the unchanging character of God for our every need. Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. God, we we thank you, Lord, that you are just. God, that in the midst of a lot of worldly definitions of what justice is, that God, you are wholly just. We thank you that in your justice, Lord, we come to an understanding that we are indeed broken and sinful people, that we can never live up to your righteousness standard. And God, we also thank you for your grace and your mercy that's found in the person of Jesus, Lord, that that you laid all of our sins upon him in an ultimate act of justice so that we may experience life in you. And so God, we surrender our lives to you. We say yes to you 
We want to follow you more and more every day in our lives. So God, show us what it means to surrender all we have to you, God. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice and we worship you.